It sure is good to be back with you folks today. You know, it's interesting in the privilege God gave Ann and me to be a part of you as your interim pastor for a while. It's kind of like a homecoming for us to be back with you today, even though we live in Atlanta. But thank you for the opportunity to come back for this one Sunday to be with you. And I really thank the leadership here of allowing us to have a time of focusing on sin relief for a few minutes here at the beginning of this time. Uh, it's the ministry I'm called to lead out of Atlanta, but a global relief and compassion ministry of the Southern Baptist Convention. And we'd just like to share with you a few moments about what it's about. Sin Relief helps the church to carry out Christ's great commission through ministries of compassion. We're about meeting needs and seeing God changing lives. And there are five major focuses of Sin Relief. One is strengthening communities, and really that's a broad statement for dealing with issues of poverty, be it third world areas or be it inner city United States, and especially areas of hunger relief and drilling of water wells where there, there is not clean water in certain villages. Secondly, it's a ministry to refugees. You may not realize it, but there are estimates of about 30 to 40 million refugees in the world today and about 80 million refugees and displaced people. Displaced people are within their own nation, but they had to leave where they live in desperation to survive. But refugees have gone to another nation. And now with what is coming with Afghan refugees, probably 50 to 100,000 will be entering American society. Right now they're on America's military bases around the country. After they go through a very in-depth, detailed time of vetting through the military uh, bases and homeland security, they'll be released in our communities like the Vietnamese refugees became a part of American culture. And it's an incredible opportunity for the church to step up to the plate, to show the love of Christ and in hopes that we can share the gospel of Christ along the way in doing so. But thirdly, we care for orphans, deal with matters of adoption and foster care and helping churches to learn how they can have ministries in this area. Fourthly, we are battling human trafficking, one of the most horrific evils of today's world. And we have centers in Shreveport and New Orleans and Las Vegas here in the United States and then in India and Thailand abroad. And then what Sin Relief is probably best known for is crisis disaster relief, be it hurricanes that bring about great damage and working with our state disaster relief teams to order to bring in supplies, food, roofing materials and help to mobilize volunteers if there's a need to go outside that state. Right now, from Hurricane Ida in Louisiana, your neighbor, 91 churches have lost their facility. And one of the things we're doing is promoting for churches like Marbley to adopt one of those churches and send volunteer teams, helping them in rebuilding, give financial resources to help them in rebuilding. Imagine coming out of COVID what these pastors are going through this very morning with no facility after what they've dealt with for a year and a half with COVID and just feeling overwhelmed. And we want to encourage those folks in their communities where we get to share Christ while ministering there. There are a few things that can help you remember Sin Relief. Uh, when you leave today, you can pick up one of these catalogs. It's a Christmas catalog. It'll be fun for you with your children or grandchildren. We got together with our grandchildren last year. In the first year, we had the catalog and got them to pick out a gift rather than giving us a gift, but a gift that 
would be in their name, whether it's a goat for a family in a needy area or chickens or helping them to develop a fish farm so that they can feed themselves, whatever. You can see different opportunities, but it's just another tool uh, that we have with Sin Relief. Plus, on October 10th, the Southern Baptist Convention has designated this day as Global Hunger Relief Sunday, and we hope many churches will be supporting uh, global hunger during this time with special offerings and giving to that as the needs are going to be overwhelming in certain third world areas when it comes to starvation and hunger. But not only that, we also need prayer. And we are beginning to develop a prayer team. I need a prayer team as the president of Sin Relief to just pray for what we're doing in ministries around the world. And you can sign up for that today. There's a booth for Sin Relief out in in the lobby as you leave the service and there are different ways that you can serve through sin relief but basically it's about praying and going and giving through ministries of compassion where we share the love of Christ to share the gospel of Christ that's what we're all about so thank you for letting us have a focus on sin relief today and do ask your prayers for that but I know what you're here for today is to be fed in the word of God so let's get to the word and I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. And we're going to be reading from verses 13 through 18. Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 18. If you're physically able, could you stand now in honor of God and join with us in the reading of His Word to us today? Verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Today our theme, storming the gates of hell. Let's pray. Father, as we stand before you, to honor you as our king, as our creator. We pray now that through your word, you will speak to all of us right where we live. And we'll receive your word in faith. We will believe your word in faith. And we will act on your word in faith. As we seek to center this time on Jesus, your son. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. There is a problem within the American church today, and it is this. The church feeling under attack by contemporary culture is so often on the defensive. We live in a culture where no longer is the Judeo-Christian ethic that so long was the dominant view in American culture it's no longer that way. The dominant view is political correctness and 
ideology of man and man-made rules and man-made reasoning about what is right and wrong. And in the process, the church feels under attack with all these different ideologies, all these different forces working against the church. There is almost a fortress mindset that sets in for the church. But that's not how the church is to respond. The church is to be on the offensive, storming the gates of hell. And we want to understand what Jesus is teaching about that today. Now, this passage, to give you the setting, tells about a time where Jesus took his disciples up north. They went up the Golan Heights, up near the border of Syria and Lebanon, north of the Sea of Galilee to a place called Caesarea Philippi. And there, while Jesus was with his disciples, a bit removed from where they normally spent a lot of their time around the Sea of Galilee, he asked them a question. He said, who do people say that I am? And they responded. They said, well, some say you're John the Baptist who's come back to life. Some say that you're Elijah, the greatest of the prophets. Some say you're Jeremiah, one of the prophets, or maybe other prophets that are named. But what they were saying in the first century with Jesus is almost identical to what the world says about Jesus today. He's a good prophet. He's a great man. A man. If you were to talk to Muslim friends or acquaintances about Jesus, do you realize that he's one of the four great prophets in Islam? Do you realize in Islam they believe that he was born of a virgin? They believe he was crucified on the cross, but the big difference is they don't believe he really died on the cross. They certainly don't believe in the resurrection because they don't believe he really died in the first place. And they certainly don't believe that he is the Son of God. But that is really the predominant view in the whole world. There are almost 8 billion people in the world today. And of those, about 2.1 or 2.2 billion are estimated to be Christian or claim to be Christian. I'm sure not all of them are, but about that many claim to be Christian. That means the overwhelming majority of the world either doesn't know who Jesus is or they really see Jesus as a good man, a good teacher, a great prophet. That is the majority view. So, the question for today is, do you see Jesus that way? Now, when they gave this answer to Jesus in verses 13 and 14, Jesus followed it up in verse 15 by saying this, but who do you say that I am? Now, folks, that's the most important question you'll ever be asked. Who do you say that Jesus is? No question is more important than this and how you answer it. And Peter speaks up. Simon Peter answered in verse 16, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to Peter, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now, you probably heard me in some of the time I was serving here as interim pastor give Peter a hard time because bless his heart, he was one of those guys that he had no unexpressed thought and he would often act before he thinks. 
And part of the reason all of us really like Peter is we identify with him. Because there are a lot of us that speak up before we really thought, that act before we really think. And, and part of that was just the unique personality of Peter. But in this particular case, when Peter spoke up, he got it exactly right. And Jesus said to him, you are exactly right. What were the two things he said about Jesus? He said, first of all, you're the Christ. That is the Greek word for the Jewish word Messiah. Peter is saying, you are the Messiah. You are the fulfillment of the prophecies of the Old Testament. They didn't have a New Testament then. All they had in the scriptures was the Old Covenant. And Peter is saying, look, you are the Messiah. You're the fulfillment about what prophecy says about the coming of the Jewish Messiah. But secondly, he says, you're the son of the living God. Now think about what that means. That means Peter is saying, Jesus is, was, and will be. In other words, Jesus is eternal. He did not begin in Bethlehem. He always is. He always was. He always will be. He sees eternity different from you and me. We are finite. We see beginnings and ends. Jesus always is, was, will be. We can't even hardly grasp it. That's because he is God and we are not. Not only that, Jesus was born of a virgin. That means he is fully God and fully man. He was supernaturally conceived within the womb of the Virgin Mary, but he also was born of a woman just like you and me. He's fully man, fully God, unlike any other person who's ever walked the face of the earth. He was the great miracle worker. The disciples saw these miracles. The Gospel of John makes a big point that one of the ways we know Jesus is the Son of God is because of all these signs, all these miracles he performed. And the disciples, were had, they had a front row seat to all of that. But then in time, the disciples would come to know, and all of us know because we're on the other side of Jesus' life and understanding the new covenant, that he went to the cross to die for our sins, to pay the penalty for our sins. So that if you and I come to accept who he is, believing he is the Messiah, the unique son of God, and believing that he has paid the penalty for us on the cross, then believing he not only was buried, fully dead, but came to life again. Because even though he died because of our sins, not any sin of his, he died when our sins were thrust upon him. Sin and death would not conquer Jesus. He is God. He rose from the dead. And 40 days later, he ascended into heaven. And today, September 26, 2021, he is reigning in heaven at the right hand of the Father. And not only that, he is coming again. And it's going to be glorious because it will not only be the ultimate salvation for those of us who are followers of Christ, but it will be the time of judgment on evil here on this earth. And we will be greatly relieved when he comes again. Do you realize what Peter was saying when he said to Jesus, you are the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. He got it exactly right. And Jesus tells him that he gets it exactly right. But we read on. Look at verse 18, the words of Jesus. But I also say to you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Now, this might seem to you to be a very obvious statement about what Jesus is saying, but there are really three 
major interpretations of Matthew 16, verse 18a. What are those interpretations? Well, the three interpretations have to do with what Jesus meant by the rock. And first of all, if you're from a Catholic background, or maybe you're visiting here or, or tuning in via a live video feed and you're Catholic, you instantly answer, will say, obviously the rock is Peter, because that's what the church teaches. The rock is Peter, and that's who Jesus was talking about here. He was talking to Peter here. And there's no doubt that Jesus selected Peter to be the first leader of the church. That's why in the Catholic Church, they see Peter as the first pope. Now, he didn't have that name then. That was a name that would be used later in history. But we understand that the Catholic Church seeing Peter as the first chosen leader, well, then to them, it makes perfect sense that Peter is the rock. But there's a second view. And the second view is that the rock that Jesus is talking about is the statement of faith that Peter uttered in response to Jesus. When he says, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God, this is the foundational rock of belief and faith in Jesus Christ. This is the foundational doctrine for the church. Many people see the rock as Peter's statement of faith. But there's a third view. And that is the rock is Jesus himself. Now let's understand why this is the case. Keep your finger at Matthew 16 and turn back in the same Gospel of Matthew to chapter 7 at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus tells a little story where he clearly identifies himself as the rock. Matthew 7 verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against the house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Now, obviously, Jesus, in conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, is identifying himself as the rock, as the foundation of our faith. But it's not just here. If you'll turn to Matthew 21, verse 42, and let me read it for you here as we're limited on time. Jesus said to them, Did you never read in the scriptures, speaking of the Old Testament scriptures that are all about pointing us to Jesus? He says, A stone. A stone which the builders rejected, which is speaking to the majority of the Jews, not all the Jews, because let's face it, all of the early disciples were Jews. But a majority of the Jews, the builders rejected. This has become the chief cornerstone or foundation stone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus was telling those people in that occasion that he is the cornerstone. Those of you in construction, those of you in the building business, you know if a house or a building doesn't have a proper foundation, when the storms come, that building is not going to hold up. But when it has a strong, firm foundation, there's a better opportunity for that building or that house to survive. Jesus is saying, I am the cornerstone. He's identifying himself that way. But that's not all. That's not all. Listen now, are you listening? Even Peter says this. Look at Acts chapter 4. Peter first preached at Pentecost in Acts 2, but then he preached again. And when he preached again, the second time he got arrested. 
And so how did he respond to those religious leaders who were telling him to stop preaching about Jesus crucified and resurrected? This is what he said about Jesus in Acts 4, 11 and 12. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under the heaven that has been given among mankind by which we must be saved. Now that's a strong statement. And who's making it? It is Peter himself preaching that Jesus is the cornerstone, the foundation stone of the church. Later on in the epistle of Peter, 1 Peter, you'll read in chapter 2, verses 4 through 8, you'll read that Peter is saying, once again, quoting this Old Testament text that Jesus used that Jesus is the cornerstone, the foundation of our faith. So the rock is clearly Jesus. Now, obviously, Jesus chose Peter to be the first leader of the church, and obviously, our Heavenly Father led Peter to give us the foundational doctrine and belief of the church, but the rock is Jesus. But that's not all. Go back to Matthew 16, our text for today, and look at verse 18a once again. Jesus says, I also say to you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Now, there are a couple of things here we don't want to miss. Peter, the word for Peter, is the Greek word petros or petros. It means a small, a small stone like a pebble. But the word for rock in the Greek means like a boulder a giant stone that's used as a cornerstone. This tells us, as Jesus was speaking to them in that day, and the Bible is recorded in the New Testament in Greek, the Greek word gives us insight about who the rock is. It is Jesus, the large boulder, and Peter's the little bitty pebble. That's what his name means. We might say Peter, we might say Rocky from Petros. It's a little bitty stone, but the word for rock is a big boulder. The biblical Greek helps us to understand this meaning, but that's not all. That's not all. This is the first time the church is mentioned by Jesus. It is the Greek word ecclesia. It came from the Greek culture where ecclesia meant the assembly of the citizens. But don't miss this. Jesus, in using this word, is giving us more insight as we look at Scripture in light of Scripture and understand that Jesus over and over talked about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. So what he is saying about the call, that is those who have responded to the highest calling in life, the calling to follow Jesus, the calling to be a Christian, is we become citizens of the kingdom of God. And those citizens are called to gather together. Why? so that we worship him, so that we are encouraged by him, so that we are encouraged by one another. Hebrews tells, don't neglect the gathering together. Now, I know some of you join us by live video feed. You can't be here because of health reasons and all. But if you can possibly be here, you're called to be together, not so that we sit here in our holy huddles and just get fed spiritually, but so that we then are encouraged and strengthened in our faith to go and fulfill the mission of the church that he makes very clear in this passage. What is he saying here? Look back at verse 18 of Matthew 16. 
I say this to you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Hades is that place of the dead where those who are going to one day face the final judgment before they are sentenced to hell, it is where they are. Now, listen very carefully. Listen carefully. I know we don't have time to go into these texts, but listen carefully. Are you listening? Don't miss this. There are two resurrections. You read about these in the book of Revelation. You also read about in 1 Thessalonians 4 and talking about the event of the rapture of the church. The first resurrection is the resurrection of the church, the followers of Jesus Christ, that precedes his second coming. It's when he comes for his church and we're given a new resurrected body on that occasion. That is the first resurrection. But there's a second resurrection that you can read about in Revelation chapter 20. And in that second res uh, resurrection, those in Hades will come before the great white throne of judgment, Jesus Christ, and they will face judgment because they have rejected Jesus Christ and they believe it's up to their good deeds to get them into heaven. But then they will be sentenced to an eternity separated from God in hell. This is found in Revelation 20. So what Jesus is saying here, when he talks about verse 18, he's saying the gates of Hades, in a sense almost hell, will not overpower it. But now here's where the church... Please listen, listen now. Here's where the church gets so confused today and gets on the defensive. We see ourselves like a fortress against the forces of evil that are constantly attacking Christians and the church and the values we cherish. That is the exact opposite of what this means, the exact opposite. What it's saying is the church is to be on the offensive. We're to be charging and storming the gates of hell because the gates of hell, the gates of the devil, cannot prevail against the church. We're to be on the offensive. But secondly, listen carefully now, don't miss this. We're not to be on the offensive by being offensive. What do we mean by that? Well, so often in the church, many here today, many join us by live video feed, you feel your enemies, those that are attacking you, are the evil ones. So you blame Muslims, you blame other religions, you blame agnostics, you blame secularists, you blame politically correct ideologists in our culture that are the dominant view, you blame the LGBT community as being your enemies. Look, look, listen. They're not your enemies. The devil is your enemy. They are just in captivity of false teaching and false ideology. They're in captivity. And they need to be released from this captivity of the devil. And Jesus is telling us, look, we're to storm the gates of hell to rescue as many people as possible that are lost and perishing spiritually, and we rescue them through the gospel and good news of Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus is saying. Maybe some of you in past years, I know Tom Clancy's been dead for a while, but he wrote some great novels. I love Tom Clancy's novels. Now, they're a tome. They are often about 900, 800 pages. I mean, it's a tome. It's a commitment to read a Clancy novel. But I think one of his best was Rainbow Six. It was a story about environmental terrorists who captured a lot of innocent people and they held them hostage. And in that story, there's like a Navy SEAL-type team that goes in and rescues those hostages where they are all brought to freedom. They are saved from an obvious death that was going to come. And they are freed from captivity. 
And it's a hilarious ending to that novel. I was laughing out loud as I was reading what they did to those environmental terrorists after that. But that is a picture of what the church is to do. The church so often feels on the defensive and all these groups that have a different mindset or a different religion, you feel they're the bad guys. No, they are people that Jesus died for on the cross. They are in captivity of the evil one. They don't realize it. They need to be set free to really live in the salvation that comes in Jesus Christ. That is what Jesus wants to do in being on the offensive. In other words, the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church when it is taking the gospel of Jesus Christ. To set free people who are in captivity of sinful and evil ideologies and false teaching. That's what we're to understand. And one reason I'm so excited about serving in sin relief is that we get to live this out through ministries of compassion in a way that opens the doors in areas where people are so captive of false religion and false teaching that they would never give us the time of day if we didn't do so share with you when we Ann and I were in a a missions conference earlier this year small church they had as one of their guests one of our international mission board missionaries he came up to me after the service said Brian I want to tell you about something sin relief did you probably don't even know about it he says I serve in South Asia and we've been training the national church people there to see their vocation as a way to be a witness for Christ He said, one of those ladies in this national church where we've been ministering and discipling these people, she has a sewing shop, and most of her customers are Muslims because they come from neighboring villages, and they're looking to get supplies for her uh, in her sewing shop. She led one of these Muslim ladies to Christ. That woman went back home and led her husband to Christ, and within a few months, There were three Christian families in this all-Muslim village. And the Muslim elders got upset. They didn't like it a bit. And then COVID came. And the people in that village were about to starve to death. So we sent to Sin Relief asking for a grant of just $5,000 where we could take that and purchase food that would provide food for each family in that Muslim village for a month when the government wasn't going to get to these people for who knows how long. These people were in danger of starvation. And we worked through the national church there so that they went into that Muslim village and they gave them bags of food that would last them about a month to a month and a half. And even though there had been this growing hostility to those three new Christian families in that Muslim village... When they left that day, every person came out of their little hut or shack and was applauding them. And now more of those Muslim families have come to Christ because we simply reached out with the love of God in Jesus. And here's what's extra special, he said. Brian, do you realize of the 3,000 remaining unreached and unengaged people group on the face of the earth, This is one of the tribes and groups that had no known Christians before we began to pray for them. And now there are Christian families there that have responded to the gospel. That's beautiful. That's the church beyond the offensive in the way that Jesus wants us to be. Ann and I were recently on the border of Venezuela. We were in Colombia, South America. First mission trip we've been able to take was in relief because of COVID. 
And we have ministry centers and working through local churches there in the northern part of Colombia. Venezuelans have been leaving their nation, that socialist government failure, they've been leaving in mass. Do you realize Americans aren't even aware of this? About 5 million Venezuelans have left their nation, about one-sixth of the population over the last five or six years because they just literally are starving. They can't make ends meet. The inflation rate is off the charts. Corruption's off the charts. And y'all, just about 20 or 30 years ago, it was one of the most affluent South American nations. It shows you what can happen in one generation when people are deceived by certain government ideology that leads to chaos. But they're just flooding across the border into Colombia and scattering out among other South American nations. And so we were down there. And what's interesting, one of the churches there in Colombia has got five or six different campuses where they're ministering to these Venezuelan refugees. And they've set up different micro-businesses that are where they have Venezuelans working there, Venezuelan refugees working there. And then one of those micro-businesses is making tennis shoes. Because, see, some of these families, mothers, grandmothers, kids in their arms, walked hundreds of miles to try to be set free from that, the horrific conditions there in Venezuela today. I want to show you this picture. We were on the side of the road as we were distributing those shoes. Those are brand new shoes, that little boy. That family had walked, they said, for about 11 or 12 days. They'd just come across into Columbia. They didn't know where they're going to wind up. But they were so grateful for the food, the shoes. I mean, you could have, could have seen those shoes of those poor kids. And all. It's a way of showing the love of Christ. We got to share the gospel with them. Some of those people trusted Christ. That's what Jesus is talking about when the church goes on the offensive to storm the gates of hell. People in captivity of this God-forsaken government ideology that is creating such disaster there. And not only to save them physically, but to save them spiritually, which is what's most important. One of our IMB missionaries serving in another part of the world said when COVID hit, they knew families in this different village. It was not a Muslim village as far as I know, but a different religion in this village. Good chance they were going to starve to death. And one of the families knew they were going to starve to death. And so they decided they were going to have a last supper in the most perverted sense. They were going to poison themselves and their children so their children wouldn't have to go in the lingering, long, miserable death of dying of starvation. And as they were planning that meal... One of the missionaries and from a national church there that the missionaries worked with showed up with a month's supply of food. And that mother and father, so overwhelmed, not getting any help like that from their own religious group, they wind up trusting Christ. They were physically saved and spiritually saved as the church is on the offensive seeking to share the love of God and the gospel of Christ in the process. Folks, the church doesn't need to be on the defensive. The church is called to be on the offensive with the love of Jesus and the gospel of Jesus. To rescue people who many of you have looked at as your enemies and they're simply lost people, spiritually lost. They're in captivity of the evil one. And they need the salvation that only comes through Jesus, our Lord and Savior, the Messiah, the Son of the living God.
I know you're just longing to have a pastor here. And the Lord's going to bring that in his perfect time. There's a man out there that God's going to choose. But I want to ask you this question. Do you have to have a pastor to go next door to your lost neighbor and begin to build a relationship with them in hopes that one day they can be set free from the captivity they're in and their spiritual lostness? Do you have to have a pastor to do that? Do you have to have a pastor to go on a mission trip in an area of the world where not many people know Christ and you have the opportunity to storm the gates of hell to liberate people who are in captivity of false teaching and ideology? No, you don't. So, Marvely, what are you waiting on? May you believe right about Jesus, as Peter did. May you put your trust in Jesus as the rock and foundation of your life. And then, may you storm the gates of hell with the church to rescue as many that are hostage of the evil one and need to be liberated and set free through the gospel of Jesus Christ. May it be. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, we thank you for the word of God that clearly reveals to us the living word in Jesus. And Father, forgive us, those of us who are followers of Christ, that so often because we do live in a world where we're now in the minority in our views about things, forgive us when we become defensive and look at the church as a fortress where we gather in our holy huddles to be protected from the attacks of the world. Oh, Lord, forgive us of this. Lord, may by the power of your Holy Spirit and the teaching of Jesus, reorient our thinking help us to repent of that mindset today and change our thinking in a way that changes our actions and our direction and may we believe in you may we trust in you and may we storm the gates of hell knowing they cannot withstand the army of the church that goes out with the love of christ to share the gospel of christ oh lord may it be and Father, for those individuals today that realize they haven't really come to understand who Jesus is till today, you, the Holy Spirit, are lifting the veil over their eyes and they now see Jesus. And they need your forgiveness for thinking they had the right view of God when they realized today they did not. May they come to you in faith. May they believe who you are. May they put their trust in you to be the foundation of their life. And today, by deciding to follow Jesus, may they join with the church in the most important work on the face of the earth to rescue many who are perishing, who are captive of the evil one, who need salvation in Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, may it be. For we pray this prayer in Jesus' name.